All right. Amen and amen. Thank you very much. If you would turn to 1 John chapter 4 today. 1 John chapter 4. I want to continue talking about trusting the love of God for us in Jesus in light of the importance of it. When I was in high school, when I was a freshman in high school, I should say, I began to think about what I might do when I got out of high school and what kind of career I might go into. And it was at that point that I began thinking that maybe I'll become a DJ and I'll spin records, if you know what a record is. And I thought about that and I was excited about the possibility of doing that. And the interesting thing about secular music is that a lot of it has to do with the theme of love, romantic love and those kinds of things. And you might could even argue that most of the popular songs some way or another are connected to love on a human level, romantic love and those kinds of things. Well, you could also argue that uh, in the history of the church, history of God's people, that the major theme that has been Uh, at the heart of a lot of our singing as Christians, as believers, is the love of God. And I heard John MacArthur say one time that he had dinner with Bill Gaither. And Bill Gaither is one of those great Southern Gospel writers that we and our family love. And uh, John MacArthur asked Bill Gaither, so what do you think is the greatest lyric that has ever been written by someone, you know, as a Christian? Uh, to honor God. And he said, he quoted from a song that we've probably heard before. He said, the greatest lyric ever written is this. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. So the picture is, if you were to try to write all that God has done to love us and the implications of it and the glory of it and the wonder of it, and the ocean was filled with ink and everybody on earth had a quill to draw from the ocean, they could not exhaust all that there is to be said about the love of God. And I think that's one reason why heaven is forever. It's because it's going to take forever and ever and ever to rejoice in and exalt and extol the love of God, especially for us in Jesus. I thought about that um, dialogue that John MacArthur and Bill Gaither had, and I began to think about the instances in the Old Testament. Um, If you read your Old Testament, you can think about how David appointed some singers to sing um, every day before the ark in Jerusalem. This was before the temple was built, but he brought the ark to Jerusalem and he appointed singers to sing every day. And the Bible tells us what they were to sing every day. It says in First Chronicles 16 that certain men were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his loving kindness is everlasting. They sang about the love of God. Then when the temple was built by Solomon and they dedicated the temple, what do you think they sang about? 
It says in Second Chronicles chapter 5 that the singers and the trumpeters and all those who played music got together and they praised the Lord saying, He indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. And at that point, it tells us the, that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was as if God himself said, Amen and Amen. And then if you think about the incident in the book of Second Chronicles where it talks about Jehoshaphat and uh, the people of Judah were being um, threatened by some armies that were coming in and Jehoshaphat gets up and he tells the, the people to put their trust in the Lord your God and he appoints singers to go into battle in front of the army and it tells us that they sang, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. It's almost like it's a broken record, but it's a good broken record because it fits exactly what they needed to know and exactly what they needed to trust God for as they were going into battle. Trust the Lord and sing that his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 136 has 26 verses, and every single verse says something to the effect, his loving kindness is everlasting. The love of God is celebrated and indeed commanded to be celebrated in song in Scripture. In the prophets, you can find in Jeremiah 33 that God talks about restoring his people. He talks about restoring the joy of his people. And it says in Jeremiah 33:11 that God was going to restore the voice of joy and the voice of gladness so that the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. So how do you restore your voice of joy? How do you restore the praise on your lips? You become convinced that his loving kindness for you is everlasting. It will never, ever end. As I've said, um, what I've been trying to do over the course of this year is to prepare us for whatever is to come, however difficult it might be, whether it's difficult economically, whether it's difficult because our government begins to become more oppressive, whether it's through taxation or through um, usurping certain freedoms or whatever it might be, or even if it's certain kinds of persecution that we might begin to experience in different ways, I've tried to encourage us to be prepared by being alert to what's going on in our country and going on in our world, by uh, praying for grace to love biblically, by being patient, long-suffering, and being kind, doing good to those who don't deserve it and who aren't being kind to us. And now we're talking about the importance of being devoted to the apostles' teaching out of Acts chapter 2. And I've argued that if the heart of the apostles' teaching is the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, who is King Jesus. This is the good news of the kingdom and the good news of the king, namely Jesus. Right now we're talking about the heart of the heart of the apostles' teaching, or the heart behind the apostles' teaching about the kingdom and the king. And the heart behind it all is the love of God. And so I've selected certain passages for us to think through to help us see that it was very much the theme of the apostles' teaching, the love of God for us in 
Jesus. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, I want us to look again and see that the love of God is at the heart of the good news of Jesus. Being in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. May God bless his word. This passage has some form of the word love 27 times. Over and over again, uh, John is talking about the love of God, whether it's God's love for us, our love for God, or our love for others. Uh, The theme of love fills this passage, and twice it says God is love. And that idea of God being love and loving us is meant to fuel our love for others and meant to deliver us from fear. And that is what we see as the emphasis in this passage in verse 19 is right at the heart of all that's being said when he says, we love because he first loved us. It starts with a call to love one another. It ends with a call to love one another. And he says the only way we can love one another is if we embrace the fact, if we know, if we believe that God has loved us. And so I want us to look at these verses, uh, just briefly kind of work our way through them and see what he has to say about the love of God. We'll be getting a better idea of what the apostles taught as we do this, and we'll see the emphasis on the heart of God's love for us in it all. So look again at verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and, and knows God. So he begins by saying, Beloved, loved ones, love. Loved ones, love. <laughs> he commands those who are loved to love. 
Now, he begins by saying, love is from God. Um, I start off by talking about wanting to be a DJ and wanting to play records and how even in the secular world, the theme of love is heard over and over again in various ways. And I think there's a reason for that. Because even among those who aren't born again, we naturally still have, uh, marred though it may be, the image of God in us. And there's common grace that we find. And even among those who aren't Christians, there is love. There's love expressed, love uh, pursued. It's not ex- not the exact kind of love that's being talked about here, but it's, it is still a kind of love. It's... Um, It's a love that's been perverted by sin in various ways because God is not at the heart of it, but it's still love. And if you read uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, the last one in the series is called Heaven, a World of Love. And he talks about the fact that heaven is a place where God is, where God manifests his glory in the greatest possible way. In one sense, God is everywhere. But there are places, as he highlights, that God has chosen to manifest his glory in greater ways. And in heaven, that is the greatest place where God manifests his full glory. And he says that is indeed because God is a God of love. He is God, the God who is love. It's a world filled with love. So he talks about the fact that God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of life. Light And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. Oftentimes, when I'm driving down the road on a sunny day in California, I think of heaven because I think of God as being the sun that fills heaven and shines, as Jonathan Edwards would say, shines the light of love into every crevice of heaven, so that there is no darkness, there is only the light of his love. He says, because God is inexhaustible and infinite and all-sufficient, that's what his love is. Inexhaustible, sufficient, and infinite in every way. He says, there in heaven, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory and beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransom may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. So he paints a picture of the greatest possible experience of love that you could ever imagine and still not fully adequately proclaim the wonder of it all. He says that's what heaven is. It's the greatest enjoyment of the greatest love there could ever be. The enjoyment of the love of God, an infinite, all-sufficient, overflowing fountain of love. But then he also begins to talk about the opposite. What's the opposite of heaven? He talks about the fact that there are three worlds. Uh, One world is the world of love. There's another world that's a world that's sort of a mixture of love and hatred, which is our world, a fallen world. 
Then he says there's the world that is hatred itself, which is hell. Whereas heaven's a world of love, hell is a world of hatred. We probably all have uh, heard people who uh, would dismiss the gospel and would dismiss God and and would voice things like what uh, Milton would say, Satan said, uh, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Or you've probably heard people say, or at least heard about people who've said that had no heart for God and were involved in all kinds of things. They would say things like, you know what? I don't care about God in heaven. I'm going to be with my friends in hell. Well, the picture that's painted for, for us by Jonathan Edwards about that is very, very sobering because it highlights the fact that those ideas of hell aren't right. Because he would say that if God indeed is love and love is from God, even love between sinners that is impure is ultimately pointing back to the God who created them and made them in his image. And that the love that is between um, even the most wicked people who run together and like Bonnie and Clyde, I was reading about this week, and others who are just out to do whatever they want to do and hurt others and steal, kill and destroy and enjoy it. Uh, the, the idea isn't in Scripture that they're going to be in hell kind of celebrating the fact that they uh, have each other for eternity. What he says is, heaven is a world of love without any hatred, and the other is hell, a world of hatred where there is no love. Everything in hell is hateful. No love to God will ever be felt in hell. He also goes on to say there is no union or friendliness among those who are in hell. They hate one another like a company of serpents or vipers that are just kind of striking at each other, tormenting each other all the time. He says in hell there will be unrestrained. On this earth, sin is restrained. In hell, it's unrestrained. He says there will be unrestrained pride and malice and envy and revenge and contention in all its fury and without end, never knowing peace. He says those who in their wickedness on earth were companions together and had a sort of carnal friendship one for another will here in hell have no appearance of fellowship, but perfect and continual and undisguised hatred will exist between them. I bring that up because of what it says. Love is from God. God is love. And when when you remove God completely from the picture, so to speak, or when God, might be better to say, God removes his love from the picture, so to speak, as he will do for those who experience hell, there is no love. There is no love for each other. There's obviously no love for God. And that is truly hell. No doubt about it. And so it's important to realize that whatever experiences of love that we enjoy in this life, it is because of God. And those around us, whatever experiences of love they enjoy in this life, it is because of God, the God who is love. And he deserves all the honor and the glory for it. And so whether we're going to a marriage of believers or a marriage of unbelievers, we rejoice in that love and we point it back to God and say it is God who deserves the glory for the love between 
the two of you. And it is a blessing. It is a wonderful thing. And we need to tie every experience of love back to God. Well, he goes on to say that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And let me just briefly highlight the fact that he's not talking about loving in any kind of way, even though every kind of love should be tied back to God. In this passage, he's not talking about the love of hot dogs or or anything like that. He's talking about his kind of love. He says, everyone who loves, meaning everyone who loves in the way that I'm going to describe here, and I have been describing in this book, everyone who loves like God loves has been born of God and knows God. In verse 8, he goes on to say, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And to know God there means to have a relationship with God, to have seen God and have been transformed by that knowledge of God. In our day and time, there are those who kind of argue the opposite. They'll argue that love is God. Meaning, if I can argue that love is the basis for my relationship with this person, then it's all right. That is the argument of those in the LGBTQ community, that these are relationships of love, and therefore it must be good and it must must be right. Love becomes God rather than God being God and that God being love. And so if God is love, therefore whatever he says love is, is what love is. And whatever he says love isn't, it isn't. And so if he says that for a man and a man, man, and a man to get married is not love, even though they would say it is, then it's not. Because the God who is love defines love for us. But in our society, we flip that. And we have to be careful of embracing that idea ourselves and thinking, well, you know, I did this out of love. I always have to evaluate my definition of love and my practice of love in light of what the God who is love says is truly love. And that's so important. It's interesting, John Calvin said, God is love, that is, that his nature is to love men. God is love. So it's his nature to love men and women too. He means mankind. It is his nature to love. And so therefore, if we come to know God and to be transformed by that knowledge, then we're going to be moved to love all men as well, and especially to love those who love God also. He goes on in verse 9 and says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. That The first part of that verse says, By this the love of God was manifested or displayed or revealed to us or among us or in us. It's the idea that um, God has shown up to show us what his love really looks like. The love of the Father. That's why Jesus could say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen my love, you've seen the love of God in 3D, in living color. Um, Again, John Calvin would say that John isn't saying that that's the only way God has loved us. He's saying there's all kinds of ways that God has loved us. He loved us through creation. He loved us through giving us dominion over the earth. He's loved us through providence and blessing us with all kinds of 
uh, blessings, whether it's marriage or children or good food or sleep or whatever it may be. God has blessed us, and that means everyone, not just believers, but he's blessed uh, the human race with all kinds of expressions of love. But here, John is highlighting the principle and, and greatest way God has loved us. The greatest way he's loved us is by sending his son, sending his son, his only son, to be born into the world that we might live through him. Then in verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, which highlights why he sent the son into the world. And um, Calvin makes the connection uh, between the love of God and righteousness. He says God's love requires righteousness. And what he means by that is he means the full and forever love of God. If we're going to enjoy God's full love and enjoy his love forever, then that's going to be only given to the righteous. If you look in the Old Testament, Proverbs and other books in the Old Testament, it makes very clear that God blesses the righteous and he rewards the righteous. What's the problem with that? There's none righteous. No, not one. You and I are not righteous. Like Dan said earlier, we are rebels against God. We've broken the covenant. We've disobeyed God. And so how can we rest and rejoice in the love of God if it's tied to righteousness? Well, that's why it's in Jesus. That's why there's the gospel. That's why uh, we need a Savior. I love the story of John Bunyan, who talked about the fact that uh, there was a period in his life where he felt like he had possibly committed the unpardonable sin. And so he was tormented by the idea that he thought maybe he had sinned against God in such a way that he could never be saved. And then he said one day he was walking through a field just thinking to himself and out of the blue, God struck him with the thought, your righteousness is in heaven. And he began to put two and two together, understanding what he knows about what the Bible says. And it came to him, he understood that what was being impressed upon his heart was that Jesus was at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the Holy Spirit was applying the truth that his righteousness is in heaven. And he goes on to say, it was, it was not his good frame of mind or heart, or his bad frame of heart. And what he means is, uh, his righteousness wasn't based on whether he was having a good day or a bad day, or whether he had just sinned or done something good or not, that his righteousness before God was tied to Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he was righteous before God, loved by God, because he was in union with the one who is righteous. And he says at the end of that testimony, All the thoughts about the unforgivable sin and such uh, left him. And he said, now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. It's when he made the connection between the righteousness of Christ being imputed to him, being given to him freely, graciously, that he embraced the fact that he was loved by God freely and graciously. And it set him free. 
He, he rested in Jesus. He rested in the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And it brought home to him the love of God. Again, that's why Calvin could say, so when a real and full certainty of divine love towards us is sought for, when we're looking to be certain that God loves us, is what he's saying, he says we must look nowhere else but to Christ. We need to look to Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what he does for me. And that's where I need to rest in terms of believing that God loves me. And that's the whole argument of this passage. John keeps going back to Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to apply to our hearts the gospel so that we know and believe that God loves us. Verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Matthew Henry comments on this verse in an interesting way as John talks about, again, Uh, connecting what God has done for us and how God has loved us in order to move us to love each other. Remember, he begins the passage and ends the passage with, with encouraging us to love each other. Matthew Henry says, Shall we refuse to love those whom the eternal God has loved? To some degree, it's all men, and especially to believers. He says we should be admirers of his love and lovers of his love and consequently, lovers of those whom he loves. I love that phrase, lovers of his love. We ought to love the way God loves. And we ought to want to love like God loves. We ought to pray, God, help me to love like you love. And how does he love? He loves the unloving and the unlovable. That's how he loves. That's me, unloving and unlovable. That's you, unloving and unlovable, except by the grace of God, where he transforms us and begins to make us more loving and more lovable. But apart from grace, we are unloving and unlovable. And that's how God loves. He loves people who are unloving and unlovable. And so whenever our hearts rise up and say, I can't love that person or I won't love that person because they're so unloving and they're so unlovable. God says, you don't have any choice. There aren't anybody else. Isn't anybody else left? God's the only one who's loving and lovable as he is. We all fall short of being loving as we should be and being as lovely as we should be. And therefore, we're called to love like God loves. We ought to love like God loves because we've been loved that way. Verse 12, he says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. There's so much I could say about that, but I'm running out of time. Um, basically, the argument there is God is invisible. Okay, He doesn't have a body as we do, like the children learn in their catechisms. So how is God seen in this world now? Jesus isn't here physically. So how is God seen in this world now? He's seen in the people of God as they love like God loves. That's how God is seen. God shows himself present when by his spirit he forms our hearts so that they entertain brotherly love. In verse 13 he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 
Again, someone has said the Spirit of God is the Spirit of love. And so when we trust in Christ by God's gracious work in our hearts, the Holy Spirit is given to us, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of love. And therefore, one way we know that we've been born of God is that the Holy Spirit is in us to enable us to love like God loves. Verse 14 says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So at the heart of this passage is the good news of what God has done for us in sending Jesus. And my basic argument has been that the heart of the good news is the love of God. And in your notes at the very beginning and at the very end, I've put a couple quotes, one from Matthew Henry, one from John Owen. The one from Matthew Henry says, God's love is thus seen and exerted in Christ Jesus. The Christian revelation is the revelation of the divine love. The articles of our revealed faith are but so many articles relating to the divine love. The history of the Lord Christ is the history of God's love to us. So he's saying the Bible and the good news of the Bible, the articles of our faith are all connected one way or the other to the theme of the love of God. The love that he's shown us in Jesus. John Owen would say that the whole purpose of the gospel is to bring us into a relationship with God the Father in which we rejoice in his free, undeserved, and eternal love. And he says, in the gospel, the Father is revealed specifically as love and as full of love toward us. And he says, the manifestation of this truth, the love of the Father for us, his children, is the unique work of the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. And as I highlighted, if you think through what John is saying in this passage, he's arguing that it's very much God's work in loving us to move us toward loving him and loving others. It's the unique work of the gospel to cause us to rejoice in God as our Father who loves us fully and forever. Verse 15, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Highlighting again that our enjoyment of the love of God in terms of its fullness and its foreverness is connected to whether or not we, by faith, are in union with Jesus. He says in verse 16, and this is the verse that uh, I get the title for this series from, He says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So the the idea is that we come to know uh, God's love by faith. We, We know and believe. We actually come to really know the love of God for us actually by faith. It's uh, like what we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where it says, we walk by faith and not by sight. If I simply look around me and look at my circumstances, there are many times I will doubt the love of God. And John Owen, in his book on communion with God, talks about the fact that one of the major problems among Christians is that they doubt the love of God. And what John is saying here is that the love of God for us is real. It's full and it's forever. But it's something that we rejoice in right now by faith. One day 
We will be in his presence and there will be no doubt. There will be no temptation to doubt his love for us. Now there are many, plenty of temptations to doubt the love of God for us. But we're to fight that temptation by faith. We're to believe the one who sent his son, his most precious person, most precious thing for us, would not indeed spare us any good thing. It is by faith that we walk, not by sight. Verse 17 says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. On the one hand, we need to embrace God's love for us, that we might love others like he's loved us. On the other hand, we need to embrace God's love for us so that we're not filled with fear. There are plenty of things going on right now in our country and in our world that if we think about it long and hard, could cause a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of unsettledness about the future. And how are we to fight that? We're to fight it with the love of God. We're to, to uh, wield the love of God for us, so to speak. Um, John here applies this especially to the greatest threat, not just you know a bad economy or uh, a government that's overstepping itself or overreaching itself. Uh, those are threats in certain ways. But the greatest threat of all is really the judgment of God. Standing before God one day and having to answer for my sin in light of my guilt. That is the greatest threat. That should be the thing we fear most if there's any place for fear. And that's what John brings up is that which is of greatest magnitude Not the only thing, but the greatest thing. And he says that knowing and believing the love of God for us is so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Again, someone has said, no one can come with a tranquil mind to God's tribunal. No one can stand before God for judgment except he believes that he is freely loved. The only way you can do that with peace and joy is if you believe that God loves you, that the judge loves you, and that your sins have been taken care of. Otherwise, you'll be tormented to one degree or another by the thought of having to stand before God one day, or you'll just try to escape that thought and just put it out of your mind, which so many people do in our day and time. He goes on to say in verse 18, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. There are uh, some interesting verses in 1 Peter um, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where um, Peter pictures Satan as a lion. He says in verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, it says, But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I thought about those verses in light of what uh, Calvin says in commenting on this verse. He says, We are continually tormented until God delivers us from misery and anguish by the remedy of his own love towards us. And he then begins to talk about how we are tempted to fear... And our struggle with fear is, is to some degree, one way or the other, based on unbelief. 
He says it is owing to unbelief when anyone fears, that is, has a disturbed mind. For the love of God, really known, tranquilizes the heart. So if you can imagine um, Satan like a lion, uh, the demons of Satan like lions, uh, the world that's under the rule of Satan like a lion, our own flesh that uh, speaks like Satan, um, coming to us in various ways, basically trying to scare us by roaring loudly with the threat of punishment, disappointment, failure, all that you can imagine, everything that you might fear. Satan is like a a lion that goes around roaring because his bite has been taken away through the cross, but he still roars, still makes noise, and he's still trying to disturb our peace, and he's still trying to instill fear in us even though he can't do anything to us because his teeth have been ripped out through the cross. And so Peter could say, it's by faith that we overcome him. Faith in what? Well, faith in the truth of God, which means faith in the gospel, and certainly faith at the heart of the gospel, which is trust in the love of God. Calvin says, it's the love of God that tranquilizes the heart. In a sense, you could say it's the love of God that tranquilizes the lion, shoots the tranquilizer into the lion to silence his roaring so that we have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace in our circumstances because we are resting, even fighting to rest in the love of God for us. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Again, which brings us back to the reality that whenever I find myself struggling to love God or love other people, it's because of a faith issue. I have to encourage my own heart. I have to strengthen my faith. If I'm going to love people like God loves, then I have to strengthen my faith in his love for me. I have to feed on the good news that God loves me fully and forever because of Jesus and all that he's done. Matthew Henry again says, We cannot but love so good a God who loved us when we were unloving and unlovely. Then the last couple of verses, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The heart of that verse there is the whole idea of either knowingly or unknowingly lying about my spiritual condition. Uh, someone can say, I love God, but his life doesn't show any God-like love. He loves those who love him, like Jesus says. It's no big deal to love those who love you. The question is, do you love those who don't love you? Do you love those who are unloving and unlovely? Uh, That's the real question of whether or not we love God. If we really love God and we know God and we've been transformed by that love, then we will show it to some degree, not perfectly, not as much as we should, but there will be something in us that moves us to love and accept and forgive those around us graciously, freely, uh, even though they don't deserve it, not any more than I or you deserve it. Um, And so um, Calvin's comment on this and actually Matthew Henry's comment on this both center on the idea that um, God is invisible, we can't see God, 
speaking of the Father, obviously, and yet we see people all around us. And the implication is that um, God has given us people in our lives to give us the opportunity to show love to God. The way he says it is this. The apostle takes here as granted what ought no doubt to appear evident to us that God offers himself to us in those men who bear his image and that he requires the duties which he does not want himself to be performed to them. He meant to show how fallacious is the boast of everyone who says that he loves God and yet loves not God's image which is before his eyes. Matthew Henry would say, How then shall the hater of a visible image of God pretend to love the invisible God himself? So the idea is, my opportunity to show that I really love God is by loving those that are right in front of me, the visible people in my own family, in my own workplace, in my own school, in my own neighborhood, uh, the people I meet at the grocery store. That's my opportunity to show the love of God, to show that I love God and that he loves me. I love people even as he has loved me. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Still sinners, may be saved, may not be saved, but still that is how I express my love to God as well as to them. Verse 21, the last verse, he says, And this commandment we have for him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Again, um, if I'm having trouble loving people in my life, and we all do, none of us loves perfectly, all of us at times in certain situations or with certain people, we find it difficult to love for whatever reason. And the question is, how do we approach that? How do we try to be different? Number one, do we care about whether we love in that circumstance or love that person. We should. John is saying there's a problem if you don't care. And so we should care whether or not we are loving in that circumstance or in that situation or or that person. The question is, where do I start? Do I just try to say, okay, I've got to you know, grin and bear it and work hard at loving that person? Well, obviously there's there's an aspect of being determined to love But the real place I need to go is I need to go to the gospel. I need to go to the good news that God loves me. And I need to meditate on the fact that I am unlovely and and unloving. And yet God has still loved me and will love me fully and forever as a believer in Jesus because I believe in Jesus. And therefore, I am to uh, pursue my love with the love of God always in front of me, leading me on in every situation and in every relationship. It's always an issue of the love of God for me and how that translates into my response. Someone said, we must therefore so begin with God as that there may be at the same time a transition made to men. Begin with God and his love for us that a transition might be made to our love to others. Let me just close with the, uh, the song that I mentioned at the very beginning, The Love of God. It starts off by saying, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. 
It goes beyond the highest star and reaches, reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Just like the Levites in the Old Testament, what do we need to be singing of every day? Literally or simply in our hearts, the love of God. We need to be singing and rejoicing in, resting in the love of God for us in Jesus, because of Jesus. And let that move us to greater love for God, greater love for others, and deliver us from the fears that assail us every day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do pray that you would help us to know and believe in greater, deeper, richer ways your love for us as your people, as followers of Jesus. We pray that that knowledge and belief in your love, that trust in your love would move us to love like you love in greater, richer ways as well. We pray that that knowledge of your love would rescue us from the anxiety and fears and worries that tend to sap our joy. And we pray that you'd give us all joy and peace in believing, believing the truth of the word and believing the good news of Jesus and believing the love that you have for us. And Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not trusting in you, Lord Jesus, has not turned from their sin and entrusted themselves to you, as Lord and Savior, we pray that they would even this day and that they would know and believe the love of God for them. Father, we pray that we would rejoice in your love for us even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.